I've listened to today's story several times now. There are so many interesting aspects of this story that deserve a deeper dive, but I just can't pick one. Is his story about our male socialized rule to not seek mental health support? Or is it about the struggles of a young transgender male trying to find his way in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Or is it about the different gender stereotypes for both men and women? Or maybe it's about the contentment one feels when they finally get a chance to heal through therapy and the joy of finally living the life that is truly you. Yes, I think it is all of these things. Eric Qualen spent the first couple decades of his life as a woman. These days, Eric is living his genuine self as a man. He has seen both sides. He understands society's gender expectations. He has lived them. There may not be a wiser person to speak on these gender issues. Eric spoke at our Winter Men Speak event on a very cold Groundhog's Day at the Laramie Train Depot. The groundhog did see a shadow signifying late spring, which is a given in beautiful Laramie, of course. I'm Bob Vines. This has been Speak, a show that aims to build a safer community through education, storytelling, and community engagement with a goal of eliminating gender-based violence in Albany County, Wyoming. Eric Quaylen spoke at our Men Speak event hosted by Evan Townsend. All right, so our fifth storyteller, soon to be Dr. Qualen. Uh, Eric is a wildlife biologist and PhD student at the University of Wyoming. When he's not wrangling animals, he's usually running too far with his dachshund, Gus. Eric grew up back east, and he lived in Wy or Laramie since 2015 and considers it home now throughout. Stand by. Throughout his time there, he's experienced many sides of masculinity and what it means to be a man. Hello. That's short folk. Um, I will preface this by saying that um, Today there was a bill introduced in the Wyoming legislature um, against trans athletes, and uh, that describes me perfectly. So um, feeling very heavy, and I'm just gonna read uh, directly off my phone. Uh, so it's a little bit unconventional for me to be discussing this with all of you because I spent the first 24 years of my life living as a woman. Uh, so it might seem a bit inappropriate for me uh, to be here, but I think I have a really unique perspective to offer, and I've seen the stigma of men's mental health from both sides, so I'd like to share that with you. So growing up, I actually had a twin brother, um, and he was cisgender and identified as male, but he was also pretty queer, and he wasn't really interested in the stereotypical activities that boys were supposed to be interested in. And I was a girl who was really a boy, but didn't know it at the time, uh, and so I was interested in all the things that I wasn't supposed to be interested in. Uh, and so because we had this dynamic, I can remember a lot of situations where my brother was pressured into doing things that didn't really fit who he was. 
Um, you know, my dad would make him help with mowing the lawn, and um, he would sit there pouting, and I would sit there asking if I could help instead. <laughs> uh, he would take him hunting, and after several trips that began and ended with tears, he stopped taking him. Um, and I watched my brother suffer a lot because he didn't live up to the expectations that my dad had for what it meant to be a boy, um, which were really grounded in the general expectations right, that our society and our culture have for boys and for men. Um, and my brother was and still is a sensitive guy, and that's okay. But to my dad, it made him weak, and um, that, that really stuck with me. Uh, it took me a really long time, like I said, 24 years, 24 long years, to realize and accept my trans identity, but before that, I joined the military. And in the military, whether you were a woman or a man or whoever, uh, mental health was not something that you're supposed to talk about. Uh, it wasn't something you're supposed to have a problem with because um, it could cost you your job if you did. Uh, and as a closeted trans person working in an organization that really wasn't ready to support or advocate for queer folks, I really struggled with that a lot. Um, I joined the military almost immediately after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, and for you youngsters, that was an outdated policy that basically said, if you don't tell us that you're queer, then we won't know, and then you can't be fired for it. Um, but they had just done away with that. And so even though I couldn't uh, lose my job for my identity anymore, uh, there weren't really any resources in place to support me either. The services just were not ready for that whatsoever. Um, and so eventually this really took a toll. And after two different services and some pretty traumatic experiences with my coworkers, I lost my job in the military through a medical discharge, not because of who I was, but because I needed help. And we didn't talk about doing that. Um, I needed to address my mental health. And that's the flip side, right, of these cultures and organizations that don't support conversations around mental wellness. They're willing to let you know that you're not well, but they're not willing to help you get there. That's on you. <laughs> and if you're a man, the unspoken expectation is that it's up to you to do it alone. So soon after I was discharged, I finally started my physical transition. But as a trans person, in order to receive gender-affirming care, like hormone therapy or surgery, you have to have a therapist. So the funny thing for me was that in order to become a man, I actually had to open up about my mental health, which wasn't really what I envisioned when I thought about becoming more masculine. <laughs> and it's really not traditional. You know, it's not like cis guys hit puberty and suddenly they get a referral for a therapist. But that's effectively what happens with trans men, which is actually, it's great. It's a good thing. <laughs> um, and because of the therapy that I received and the work that I actually had to do, to become who I am now, I was able to start living not just as a man, but as a healthy man. And now I'm in a unique place to help other people do the same thing. But when I first started passing as a man in public, uh, people almost immediately started treating me differently. I didn't get ID'd at bars, other guys said hi to me, people seemed to respect me more in various spaces, but things also changed emotionally. People didn't check in as much. I had maybe one guy friend who would talk about mental health, and then no one else would. Um, people didn't ask how I was doing. Or if they did, they didn't really mean it. You know, like when someone goes to someone else and is like, how are you? Fine. How are you? Fine, even though your lives are both like active dumpster fires, right? <laughs> um, 
And it was really frustrating because I had all these tools for how to approach mental health now that I was a man, but now that I was a man, I wasn't supposed to use them. So I started talking about it, and I got together with other people who also wanted to talk about it. So for example, I'm in the zoology department here at UW, and during COVID, when we were all losing our shit more than usual, we started a mental health and wellness working group that gives our faculty and staff and students the opportunity and the resources to have conversations around mental health. Because the reality is, everyone needs support in some form. We're all human, we're all vulnerable, but a lot of people really just need permission. Permission to talk about what they're feeling, permission to not be okay, permission to get help. Most people won't get the chance to live on both ends of the gender spectrum and see how differently mental health is addressed at each end, but anyone can start a conversation. Anyone can check in on their friends, their family, their loved ones, a stranger. Anyone can give anyone else permission to let go of what culture and society tell us about mental health, and especially about men's mental health. And you don't have to be okay to ask someone else if they're okay. Other people's wellness is not your responsibility, but it is an opportunity, sometimes a life-saving opportunity, and I really hope you take it. Thank you. Now we're joined by my co-host and producer, Cooper McKim, for a deeper conversation with Eric. How does it feel to hear that story again? Um, it's it's good. Sometimes you're not sure how um, you know how awkward something's gonna sound after the fact, or if what you meant to say really came across. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was it was good to hear it again. Okay. Did you have any like different feelings about it, or for anything changed since then? Uh, I think. Not necessarily. I mean, in the moment, I think it felt really um, kind of thrown together and, and maybe a little bit uh, chaotic. But uh, listening to it after the fact, it, it sounds a lot more uh, like what I actually hoped <laughs> uh, would, would come out of it. It's a good reminder to me, honestly, that I am still putting in the work and doing productive things. Uh, I think it's easy to maybe brag about yourself for a small amount of time and then you throw it away and you walk away and you um, you know tell yourself that there's still so much work to be done you can't really sit around and celebrate uh, what's already happened yeah what were you thinking when you I saw you writing down yeah I was writing a lot of stuff that that doesn't necessarily mean anything (laughs) but shit I was I was really really uh, impressed with your story I listened to it several times and I find it really interesting because you bring such a unique take on gender roles because you've seen it from both sides. And there's a lot that we can learn from your experiences. So can you talk about those experiences a little bit in more detail? I know in your story you discussed about how you were treated differently as, as a male. Uh, but can you go a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, I think, I mean, to start off, for me, I didn't personally, when I was living as a woman, I didn't personally realize how different that treatment was. 
especially as somebody who was on, you know, kind of the tomboy side of things, I always like to think that I was treated pretty similarly to men, to men. Um, but it wasn't actually true. Uh, and, um, yeah, it was not until I actually transitioned and began, um, people use the term passing. So, you know, when, when other people basically believe that you are the gender that you are portraying yourself as. So when, you know, you can walk into a bar or a liquor store or wherever and, uh, people think that you're a man in my case. Um, and so when that started happening, uh, I, I, I noticed a, a pretty, um, a pretty abrupt and a, a pretty strong difference in, in the way I was treated. And it was uh, mostly all positive. Um, I would, as I kind of mentioned in my story, I would, I would walk into places that, you know, if, if a place sold alcohol, whether it was a, res- a restaurant or, um, or a bar or, or whatever. And I have kind of a baby face, so I was used to being ID'd all the time as a woman. Uh, and they stopped doing that. Um, when I started passing as a man, but then a woman would walk in right behind me and regardless of how they looked, um, age wise, they, they would usually be ID'd even though I wasn't. Um, and that was kind of one of the, the first things I noticed. It was just, um, you know, it was like, I didn't need to be evaluated as much. I didn't need to be checked as much. I, I was kind of trusted more by people. Um, but then at the same time, uh, there's a lack of trust from people. So I remember talking about this with my ex before I started physically transitioning was this idea that as a lesbian um, or as a bisexual woman, I could walk into a space with other women and be treated like a safe person uh, and, and be treated well and be trusted. Uh, and I was afraid of losing that after transitioning. And Laramie's a small community, so I don't think that's happened very much, um, you know, with the people that know me or knew me. But walking in other spaces and in other places, there's definitely, um, or entering into conversations on social media even, I have to be a lot more aware that I'm I'm being perceived as this cis white guy <laughs> um, who, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about, about any kind of women's issues or reproductive rights or um, anything queer and that's something that I, I have to kind of step back and realize when I'm walking into those spaces now what were those spaces like when you were serving in the military as you were um, becoming more more comfortable with your identity um, I would say that for most of the time that I was serving I really um, I really wasn't embracing my identity very well. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of a neutralizing environment in the sense that you're all in the same uniform, you know, um, you all have the same job. And so um, it wasn't it wasn't so stark except for the fact that the military is still very much designed based on gender roles. So, you know, the having to put on the the women's uniform for formal events that always felt really terrible for me um you know uh you were literally forced to purchase heels i mean things like that right that that you just wouldn't have to do in another kind of workplace environment um but i did have 
yeah, I, I certainly had a lot of respect in kind of um, queer and female spaces in the military. I was involved in um, uh, groups against sexual assault, um, did uh, like peer advocacy and, and peer mentor kind of training. It, it, I never had thought about my friends. I try to keep relatively emotionally conscious. <laughs> and so it made me think a lot after hearing your story about maybe it's, it just made me think about my gender in a way that I never had before, which I was really appreciative of. Um, and to stay conscious of trying to be the kind of person who checks in with their male friends and makes it acceptable to open up and be vulnerable because it is really really sad if if it just goes away as soon as you start presenting as a man yeah because for me um you know I had primarily female friends beforehand and I thought that maybe that would change just in the sense that I I know I became more comfortable spending time socially with with men the more that I was comfortable with my identity as a man before that I was just kind of resistant because I didn't really feel like I belonged um but that really hasn't changed I still primarily have female friends and the reason being that they're the ones that I can have those conversations with you know um like I was saying I have one really good male friend who who we, we can have those those deeper conversations but he's an anomaly I mean you know the other um the other men that I have hung out with it's not that they're not fun it's just that um it's all on the surface and that's that's a really difficult way to build a relationship especially when you've done the work to be aware of what it takes to actually have a healthy relationship whether it's a friendship or something more yeah so what i guess i want to make sure that because even for myself it's like what how, how do you define a healthy relationship like what is that to you yeah uh I mean, I think that there are general characteristics. Yeah. Um, that being said, I, it, it definitely depends on the people and the kind of relationship that they're trying to have. But I mean, I think the biggest thing that we see or, or lacking in a lot of relationships that end up kind of staying on the surface or, or becoming toxic in some way is, is just transparency and, and communication so just that open and honest like people that don't let things fester you know people that feel comfortable expressing with each other how each other's actions make them feel um, what they want what they need uh, mm. whether or not that other person can provide those things just just even just knowing right like you know I think some people some people don't share things with other people because they don't think that person can have an impact on how they're feeling. So maybe I'm not going to tell you I'm depressed because I don't think you can make me happy. Hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not valuable information for you to have to know that I'm depressed because you can approach me in a way that still might help whether or not I think that's true. So a lot of it has to do with perception, honestly. And, um, yeah, just, just the ability to express where you're at. I imagine that comes up in safe men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, with the safe men group, we try really, really hard 
to make sure that um, as many perspectives as you can are represented. And it's really fun to, to watch the different perspectives uh, and watch these men actually open up in, in spaces where they typically would not. There's a thing called pluralistic ignorance, right? It's that little voice inside your head that uh, tells you, especially in situations where you're uncomfortable about uh, what's being said or what your friends are hearing, but there's this little voice inside your head that says, well, maybe I'm the prude here. Maybe I'm the one that's, that's, that's got this whole thing wrong. So you, you shut up. You don't share. Hmm. And um, the amazing thing is, though, is that when you have courage to share your feelings and be as vulnerable as you can, people will line right up behind you. That's the beauty about uh, stepping out um, is more than likely there are other people that are feeling exactly the same way that you are. And that's another reason why storytelling is so important when it comes to acting as a catalyst for, for culture change. When we hear somebody tell a story, we learn how to empathize with that person. And where I may not have had the same experiences as Eric, when I am engaged in his story, I'm able to start putting myself into his shoes. And that's empathy. And when we're able to have empathy, that's when we're able to start changing those harmful narratives behind all sorts of things, including masculinity. And we start to come to realize that everything is on a spectrum. Everything. Sexuality, gender, masculinity, Everything is on a spectrum, and everybody is seeing the world through a different lens, and that's okay. So that is why I really appreciated your story. It really opened up my mind in a lot of different areas, and I just appreciated the perspective. There's uh, one thing you said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, um, especially when we're talking about systems or working inside systems or trying to get help through systems. You had said... They're willing to accept that you, you need help, but they're not willing to help you get there. And I thought that was a real powerful statement. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, that was, for me, that was, that was particularly true when I was in the military, uh, you know, is that uh, they were more than happy to screen you and look for problems and, you know... Um, tell you that you're unfit for duty or, or what have you. Um, but when it came, you know, if you actually had a problem, for the most part, you were either done or you were thrown into a system that really was not designed to productively provide assistance. So uh, in my case, I tried to kind of get ahead of things in the sense that I um, I reached out. There, There's this thing called the Employee Assistance Program, and it's it's kind of intended, uh, I mean, the whole premise is, is problematic in that it's supposed to be kind of this anonymous help system so that uh, employees within the military could 
could get help basically without endangering their careers. It shouldn't have to be that way in the first place. Um, and so the idea is you call this random number, you speak to somebody that you don't know, you kind of describe what you're dealing with, and they could hook you up with um, you know, a therapist or whoever that is local, and that would be covered through the program. The problem that I found with that was that you're, for one thing, you're, I, I was living on base at the time, so you're sneaking off base, which is you know, unusual, right? People might ask questions about that. You have to find a way to possibly get transportation, depending on who you are. Um, so the for us, it was our um, effectively like our victim advocate that would take me. Um, and then this therapist was not a good therapist. I mean, they were just you know, there's a reason they were free, right? That they were part of this government program. Um, they were not the kind of person that like they were they were the kind of person that the government could afford um, and was willing to afford and. Uh, it was not helpful, <laughs> you know, whereas if I had the autonomy to just go and find somebody that I liked and that would work for me, which even if you are well off and flexible and what have you, that's a really difficult process. You're generally not going to find the right person on the first try. Um, that would have made a big difference for me, uh, most likely in, in whether I stayed or not. But this, this person was, um, was really a reflection of that system that it was doing the absolute bare minimum uh, in order to say that it was in place. You ended your story um, with advice, which which was really nice. Um, you don't have to be okay to ask someone else if they're okay. Those, your your story was the last one that we had, other than the um, the wild card. I couldn't think of better words to go with uh, ending our night of storytelling about uh, fighting the stigma of men's mental health than those words right there. You don't have to be okay to ask somebody else if they're okay. I appreciate you for that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think, I think there's this um, a, a stigma really that you have to be in a really good place to be able to help other people or that you have to be healthy, or that you have to be successful, uh, or you have to be stable in order to reach out to other folks. And realistically, that it's great if you can be, but um, you're almost more likely to be able to empathize with the people that you're talking to if, if you're not <laughs> in a good place. Um, because then they understand that you understand what they're going through, at least to an extent. Um, and it's you know, it's not like you're signing up to be somebody's therapist or, or whatnot. But um, you know, like I was saying, most people just need permission. They just need to be able to say out loud, "I'm not okay," <laughs> and then we can figure it out from there. But you know, they they're still gonna have to do the work. But even just to share the the burden of knowing that with one other person it makes it so much lighter. And we're talking about gender roles here too it's very, very difficult for men to have those conversations yeah. uh, because it makes us uncomfortable. And uh, we will be looking for any sort of way to change the subject uh, if, it gets start, if it starts getting uncomfortable. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. We need to do a better job of checking in with each other. And, uh, and it's not that hard. Just, you know, asking someone, how you doing? How you doing? <laughs> I mean, had had you, I I know that clearly you've thought about it a lot. Um, but had you put it 
in such a did reflecting on this story help figure anything out or was this story already sort of built in your mind um you know i think i think it did help in the sense that it's easy to focus on where you think you messed up and where you think you were um you failed or you struggled and it, it's not as easy to see that all the way through to to where you are now and realize um how far you've come and what you've actually learned so even though logically before i told this story i knew that i'd been to therapy and <laughs> i'd done the work and i knew that you know i wasn't um i wasn't in the same kinds of dark places that i was um in the military or before that um but but to actually put it all together from start to finish yeah that definitely um i think always helps put things into perspective it's kind of the same idea that one of the best ways to learn is by teaching someone else you know one of the best ways to remind yourself of what you've been through is to tell somebody else mm. I almost like I never want to stop the conversation after we're having them. <laughs> so just one other thing, just to follow up. Um, you were in a heavy place that night, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we live in a very conservative state. And we have such a history of trying to take freedoms away from uh, our most marginalized populations. And... Um, you're listening to the, the story in the podcast that Bill did not uh, survive. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to be trying again to get that passed. And the best way to combat that is to be in their faces. You know, get your signs made up. Contact your, 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 your representatives and tell them, stop taking away freedoms from people. So there, there's my advice. <laughs> Probably not as good advice as yours, but uh, raise some hell, people. <laughs> get out there. Get out in front of this sort of stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Eric, for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. The Men Speak podcast is a project of the Campfire Initiative. It aims to build a safer community through education, storytelling, and community engagement with a goal of eliminating gender-based violence. It is produced and hosted by Cooper McKim and Prevention Specialist Bob Vines. This project was supported by grant number 2019-CYAX0016, awarded by the Office on Violence Against Women, U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women.